The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When the White House and uh, Chamber of Congress, particularly the House, are controlled by different parties, you see much more oversight of that executive branch by the House than you do when they're controlled by the same party. This is not, you know, groundbreaking or counterintuitive, but one of the things that our work does is just add, again, and also adding this work with letters, which is um, largely novel, adds to that body of understanding, this notion that we do be- Again, not shocking, but partisan dynamics really do play a role here. And um, while the House and the Senate certainly did investigative work directed towards the executive branch um, in the 117th Congress, they were doing less of, you know, the House was doing less of it than it was um, in the 116th Congress. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 18th, 2023. Listeners of this podcast are probably familiar with Molly Reynolds' work on Congress. She's a senior fellow at Brookings and a senior editor at Lawfare. And she has a new report out with Brookings with Naomi Mayer on how partisan and policy dynamics shape congressional oversight in the post-Trump era. Molly and her team have collected an enormous amount of data over the years about how Congress conducts oversight. And the report is a thought-provoking overview of what the legislature got up to during the 117th Congress. Today on the show, I talked with Molly about her report and what patterns she's found in oversight from the 116th Congress through today. For fans of the January 6th committee's work, we also discussed that committee's investigation and what it does and doesn't tell us about congressional investigations going forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 18th. Congressional Oversight, post-Trump. So Molly, you and Naomi Mayer have a new report out with Brookings titled How Partisan and Policy Dynamics Shape Congressional Oversight in the Post-Trump Era. Tell me a little bit about it. Obviously, I'd love to know the answer to that question, but we'll get into that over the course of the hour. Uh, But what are you looking at particularly in this report? Sure. So um, I'll start by saying that while the major focus of this report is the post-Trump era, so the 117th Congress, uh, 2021 and 2022, it's actually the last in a series of reports um, that I have worked on about congressional oversight of the executive branch going back to the beginning of the 116th Congress in 2019. And I think that's really helpful to um, remember because part of what started me on this project in the first place was this notion going into the 2018 congressional midterms that if Democrats took control of the House, which they did, they were going to, you know, unleash this massive amount of aggressive oversight of um, the Trump administration. There were, you know, various discussions of subpoena cannons, uh, if uh, listeners remember that. And so I will confess, I had forgotten about the subpoena cannon. (laughs) Part of what, uh, you know, Lawfare has multiple uh, multiple cannons in its uh, orbit. Um, but so part of what made me start on this project in the first place was wanting to know, you know, what actually was 
going to happen? Um, were Democrats going to engage in the kind of um, oversight that some of them had talked about on the campaign trail in 2018 that many folks um, sort of were suspecting that they might? And so in 2019, uh, I and my inveterate team of um, research assistants, so both Naomi, who's my co-author on this report, um, her predecessor, Jackson Goad, and um, a you know, truly remarkable and dedicated team of interns over the course of four years began collecting information on every hearing um, first held uh, in the for the first two years of the project um, held by House committees, and then for the second two years of the project held by House committees and Senate committees. So every congressional hearing, and then also every letter that a congressional committee sent and made public. Congressional committees are required to. Um, notice when they are having hearings. So our set of um, hearings that we looked at uh, is um, is complete. Our set of letters is a little bit dependent on whether a committee wanted to publicly release that they had sent a letter. But we feel like we have as comprehensive a database of those letters as possible. And so we collected all of that information. And then we used a kind of coding approach that we developed to figure out how much of that material, how many of those hearings, how many of those letters were actually involved with overseeing the activities of the executive branch. So for um, the first two years, the Trump administration, um, in the second two years, some of it is the Biden administration, some of it is also looking back at activities that happened during the Trump administration. We'll talk a lot about January 6th, I think, uh, in this podcast, as Quint and I are wont to do. Uh, and so you'll see that that comes up a lot in this report as well. But basically, our goal was to get as complete a picture as we possibly could of how much oversight of the executive branch, um, the House, and then uh, again, in the 117th Congress, the House and the Senate were doing. And we also want to know what were they looking at? So we um, applied a set of, um, we also sort of categorized every piece of content that we collected, every hearing, every letter into a set of um, policy areas. Uh, so uh, we know, you know, how many of them were about the environment, how many of them were about criminal justice, how many of them were about the rule of law, uh, that that sort of thing. And so we really wanted to get um, as complete a picture as we could of kind of what Congress was up to. And I'll just say that uh, I'm really glad to have done this project, but um, as hopefully I've conveyed, it was a lot of work. <laughs> um, and so uh, one of the things that's really exciting um, about the data to me is that, you know, we have it and um, other people are also using it for different things. And so uh, it, I think in addition to being able to tell, you know, our Lawfare podcast listeners, some things about congressional oversight. It's also proving to be really useful to other folks who are interested in studying these questions. That's really helpful background. And I will definitely say, having perused your Trump era oversight tracker, there is a truly astonishing amount of data in there, um, which I think really brought home to me just how difficult it is to keep track of everything that Congress is doing. That sounds like a really basic question. Um, but the amount of data that you all had to collect and track down and the fact that, as you said, there may well be information out there that you don't have because the committees may not have, you know, announced that they were sending out letters or that kind of thing. It, it's all very diffuse, right? Was that surprising to you that it was so sort of vast and widely distributed and kind of difficult to get your hands around? Or was that kind of what you were expecting? Yes and no. Um, for better or for worse, I have spent much of my career uh, trying to wrangle information about the United States Congress into forms that are useful to people um, who don't have all the time in the world to try and make sense of what Congress is doing. So I sort of went into the um, the project with the baseline expectation that um, some of this would be challenging. What I will say is that there are there are some institutional differences in how easy it is across the House and the Senate and how easy it is to get this information. And so I think to the House of Representatives credit, they have a unified uh, committee repository, that's what they call it, um, where there is information in a standard format about every hearing. And so a lot of our work on this project was made easier by the fact that um, one of our early team members, uh, Rachel Ori, who is now at the Bipartisan Policy Center and has um, been on the Lawfare podcast talking about uh, election administration work that uh, they do over there now. 
was able to build us, this is getting a little bit in the weeds, but build us a web scraper that uh, automated some of this work. And that was really helpful. I do. I also think that the fact that it's pretty diffuse, particularly in terms of the letters where we had to really visit the website of every congressional committee to, to find the ones that they had released, um, says something important about kind of the institutional structure of the U.S. Congress. So um, we talk a lot thinking about members' personal offices uh, and the idea that there are, um, you know, I guess 541 small businesses. So um, the 435 voting members of the House, the six delegates, and then the 100 senators. Each of those offices operates individually with a lot of latitude for individual members on how they want to organize their office. But to some degree, the same is true of committees as well. So committees make different choices. Uh, and this is one of the themes of the of the report, actually, and of the overall project is committees make different choices about what they want to focus on um, and how they want to focus on it. And that includes, um, you know, how do they want to design their website and what information do they want to make public? And so I do think it's not just a question of, you know, how did we go about doing this work, but it does on an important level reflect kind of the structure of the institution. So to set up your findings this time around, maybe it would be helpful to kind of stay in the past with your first report about Trump era oversight. Could you just walk me through, you know, this kind of high level findings? And then I think that will help us explore what you found put in during post-Trump oversight and maybe how things have changed. Sure. So I would say there are kind of three big things that I would highlight from um, our first report, which again, looked at just the House um, for uh, 2019 and 2020. One is that Yes, there was a lot of oversight of the executive branch. Um, it's without, you know, data going back even further, it's hard to say, you know, was it historic levels? But there was a lot of it. Um, House Democrats did, you know, really follow through on their um, their commitment and their pledge that they would investigate the way that the Trump administration um, was operating. Two is that a lot of that oversight was on the kind of things that you would have thought it would be about, you know, some of it about kind of the personal conduct of people involved in the Trump administration and President Trump himself. Um, some of it involved with the kind of high level like rule of law questions that the Lawfare podcast and Lawfare in general litigated quite extensively um, over the course of the, the Trump era. And then the third thing I'll say, which in some ways is most interesting to me as a political scientist who studies Congress, is that COVID had really profound consequences for congressional oversight in uh, the 116th Congress. So in you know March of 2020, it became not impossible, but a lot less feasible for members of Congress to gather in person to conduct congressional hearings in the way that they had, you know, for uh, for generations. And so you actually sort of see that come up in our data. So they, if you look at sort of 2019 versus 2020, 2020 features many more um, letters sent by committees uh, than 2019 does, and uh, many fewer hearings. And we argue that that's in part because, you know, committees are responding to this exogenous disruption um, in um, in their operations. And then you obviously also see uh, just topic-wise, committees start to devote more attention to um, things related to, um, to the pandemic and the federal response to it, you know, as you would expect when a once-in-a-generation policy, we hope, policy problem emerges. Uh, and so those are um, some of the big takeaways, both kind of in the context of Trump specifically, and then also just thinking more institutionally from the, the first two years that we studied. And so how does that carry over or not um, into the post-Trump era? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing to take away from the uh, this report in comparison to um, the previous report, where, again, the clearest comparisons we have are across the House, since we have House data for, um, for both Congresses, and just that the 117th Congress did less oversight of the executive branch. So... Um, in the 117th Congress, House committees had about 20% um, fewer hearings focused on overseeing the executive branch than they had in 
the um, 116th Congress in the case of um, of letters. Um, uh, House Committee sent roughly three times as many letters um, overseeing the executive branch in the 116th and in the 117th. Again, some of that is going to be inflated a little bit by just how many letters they sent in the 116th Congress because of COVID. But it's definitely the case. And you know, one of the biggest kind of findings from the existing political science research on congressional oversight is that when the White House and uh, Chamber of Congress, particularly the House, are controlled by different parties. You see much more oversight of that executive branch by the House than you do when they're controlled by the same party. This is not, you know, groundbreaking or counterintuitive, but one of the things that our work does is just add, again, and also adding this work with letters, which is um, largely novel, adds to that body of understanding, this notion that we do be- Again, not shocking, but partisan dynamics really do play a role here. And um, while the House and the Senate certainly did investigative work directed towards the executive branch um, in the 117th Congress, they were doing less of, you know, the House was doing less of it than it was um, in the 116th Congress. One aspect that really jumped out in the 116th Congress was not only the amount of oversight that Congress was doing. I mean, the Democrats really kind of came in to control of the House in that that midterm with a promise that they were going to hold Trump to account. We we had an impeachment. We had so many hearings. We had so we had many two letters. I guess that's right. Yeah, right, right. God, <laughs> it, it it piles up on you without you noticing, and. One one of the additional sort of interesting things about that burst of oversight activity was that there was a real reticence on the part of the executive branch to respond, which often turned into outright stonewalling. And if I'm remembering correctly, that actually ended up being one of the articles of impeachment um, that was on the table, if, if not passed by the House, in the first impeachment that the executive branch had just refused to hand anything over. So... I think it would be interesting to maybe talk about that dynamic a little bit. And then if you think that that has carried over at all in in the your next report, obviously, the, di- the political dynamics are really different. As you say, we have Democrats in control of both the House and the White House so that, you know, we would expect less political jockeying at the same time. There are also institutional dynamics where the executive... The, it's often referred to as a, a one-way ratchet of executive power. You know, each president increases it, and then the next president is sort of reluctant to give up that authority, even if the political dynamics may change. So, how do you see the Biden administration as rolling back or building on the Trump administration's kind of reticence to hand over information? Yeah, it's a really great question. And in the sort of analogous report to this one that we put out two years ago um, in the summer of 2021, um, we actually talk a fair amount about that as one of the biggest legacies of the second two years of the Trump administration, um, especially under uh, divided control when de- when Democrats held the House, is this idea that the Trump administration was really reluctant to cooperate with congressional invest- investigations. And they really saw a lot of their kind of strategy for working with Congress in this context just to stonewall and to slow walk and to take things to the courts. We don't write as much about sort of that experience with unified party control in the first two years of the Biden administration, so that the 117th Congress um, in this report, in part for the reasons that you mentioned, because of kind of the shared, the nature of shared party control, um, both really shapes the kinds of questions that Congress is asking um, of the executive branch. Um, and also because one of the things that we uh, that we do talk about in this report, um, and we can you and I can talk about a little bit more in a second, is sort of thinking, putting the oversight activity that committees were doing in context and thinking about the ways in which, especially in unified government at the beginning of a new presidential administration, there are other contextual reasons that we might think committees are going to do less oversight, even beyond just the kind of partisan reasons for not wanting to make a president of the same party look bad. What I will say, um, and you and I have talked about this kind of separately, and this is kind of beyond the scope of this report, is that we have actually over the last you know six months or so seen what I think are a couple of really interesting cases of kind of the Biden administration and the Republican-controlled House returning to a little bit more of a 
kind of normal politics. Um, I don't love the word normal here, but a little bit more of kind of how things have worked in the past around requests from the House, from House committees for information from the executive branch, the executive branch saying, no, we're not going to give you everything, um, but having some negotiations around this. Um, We've seen this uh, in the context of, for example, the um, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Mike McCall, and his efforts to get information about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, particularly um, his interest in seeing the, the sort of infamous dissent cable that was sent by some folks at the State Department around uh, the withdrawal. So we've seen um, we've seen a little bit more of a return to um, what this is. One way I like to describe it. So Tom Davis, who used to be a member of uh, the House from Northern Virginia, a Republican, who for a while chaired the. House Oversight Committee. It has had a variety of names. Um, It is back to being called, I believe, the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. I actually can't even keep track of it. The Republicans tend to call it one thing. Democrats tend to call it something else. Anyway, Tom Davis once said that congressional oversight of the executive branch is like uh, Congress asking for the moon and getting some moon rocks back from the executive branch. And we actually have seen, I think, in this Congress, the 118th, a couple of examples of that that are kind of interesting, particularly given just how much the Trump administration in those um, two years of Democratic control of the House really did ratchet things up. So you mentioned there were there are other reasons why we might have expected to see less oversight in the 117th Congress. What are those? Yeah, so there are sort of two of them um, that we talk about in the report. One of them has to do with nominations. And so when you, and this it really applies to the Senate, so when you have um, a new president of either party um, and under any constellation of party control, one of the things that a new presidential administration needs to do, hopefully, is fill executive branch vacancies. That's a just from a kind of constitutional perspective, that is a thing that is going to take up a bunch of time at the beginning of a new presidential administration. And so there's a figure in the paper where we plot the share of Senate committee hearings uh, by month that are about nominations versus about executive branch oversight. And for almost every month in the two years uh, of the 117th Congress, uh, more of like greater share of uh, committee hearings are about nominations. Uh, That is, again, some of that is just the constitutional realities of a new presidential administration. Um, Some of it is also the fact that in our current partisan environment, there's a lot of attractiveness for a president and a Senate controlled by the, the same party and using a lot of their time to process nominations. Um, Because nominations only require a simple majority to invoke cloture, they don't need um, the 60 votes that's required for most legislation to invoke cloture. It's just a lot easier to do them with a narrow majority like uh, Democrats had uh, in uh, the the 117th Congress. Um, And so there's sort of a, you take the constitutional reality and you add the political context um, on top of it. And then the other thing that we talk about in the report is the um, the idea that at the beginning of a new administration, again, under unified party control, there's, a, there's interest in trying to get as much legislating done um, as you can, as close as we have to an iron law in American politics is that the president's party will tend to lose seats, if not outright control of one or both chambers um, at their first midterms. And obviously, that is what we saw with the um, uh, the Democrats was in control of the House to Republicans um, in the 2022 midterms. And so there's a real interest, uh, understandably so, on the part of congressional Democrats to try and do as much legislating as they could in the beginning part of uh, the 117th Congress. And so again, that leads, you know, um, as I think we we know in the report, the most precious resource available to a congressional committee is time. And, you know, they have to decide how to allocate their time and resources across different activities. And so there are these kind of contextual reasons beyond just this question of partisan team play that we might expect to see comparatively less attention uh, devoted to oversight in the beginning of a new presidential term uh, under unified party control. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers, with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So speaking of committees that were short on time, uh, a lot of your (laughs) paper is about, of course, uh, our old friend, the January 6th committee, which turns out to have conducted like a significant chunk of all of the oversight that took place in the House during this period. So tell me a little bit more about that. So having watched the January 6th 
committee probably more closely than was good for my mental health at certain points during its life. Um, I obviously knew how much activity they had done. I knew how engaged they were. I was not necessarily until sort of we looked at the data on the back end uh, expecting that that would represent the share of executive branch oversight activity in the House that it did. But I think it really, again, speaks to just how much um, how much they did. And so I think that, that um, that's one sort of takeaway from the report for me. And then we sort of go through kind of how you sh- how we might think about that. So one of the things that we try to we try to do with this project generally is um, situate kind of our work in the broader understanding that um, scholars and practitioners have of congressional oversight. And so some of this has come out of um, some really great work done by um, the folks at the Levin Center, which is named for um, Carl Levin, former Democratic senator from Michigan, who was a real champion of congressional oversight. And one of the things that they have tried to do is kind of formulate what makes quote unquote good oversight. And so thinking about kind of the work of the January 6th committee in in that context, the January 6th committee certainly kind of used all of the investigative techniques available at um, their disposal. They certainly uncovered useful information. Um, what they, you know, did not do that some work by folks at the Levin Center have argued is one good marker of oversight is produce a um, consensus on the facts. <laughs> uh, but I think there are fair questions about whether that is humanly possible in um, in this context. But that's kind of um, part of how we approached working uh, or thinking about the January 6th committee um, in the in the context of this of this report. I'll also say we spend a little bit of time thinking about the kind of bipartisan question. And, you know, many Republicans, both in Congress and outside of Congress, spend a lot of time trying to uh, make the January 6th committee seem like a kind of democratic witch hunt exercise. Um, But one of the things that we note in the report is that we really should think about the committee's work as bipartisan. And we should think about it as bipartisan, not just because, you know, if it is bipartisan, it might land differently with the public, but also, um, and here we rely on some um, reporting that came out right after the committee released its final report from, uh, I believe, Luke Broadwater and Robert Draper at the New York Times, where they quote some folks as saying that part of why the January 6th committee was able to get as many Republican witnesses to cooperate with its work as it was is because of the presence of um, Liz Cheney in particular um, and also Adam Kinzinger on the committee. And so that really helps illustrate, I think, again, a broader point about congressional oversight, which is that bipartisanship is not just about, you know, does something come with a bipartisan imprimatur because it's involved members of both parties, but the reason to want oversight to be bipartisan is because it also builds broader buy-in from the kinds of individuals who you might need to cooperate with your fact-finding endeavor. This also gets to something that we've talked and written about, which is to what extent the committee's success, which as you hint, there are metrics by which it may not have been a total success, although query whether anyone could have achieved success under the circumstances, uh, let's say relative success, to what extent that's replicable in the future for other congressional committees? Because what you're describing in terms of the committee's sort of commitment to bipartisanship, even if Republicans tried to frame it otherwise, is maybe not something that would be quite so easy for other committees conducting investigations to replicate in the future, right? Yeah. And so here, um, this part of the um, of this report really draws both explicitly um, and like with citations to some work that you and I have done together that you have done. Um, and certainly just in influencing my broader thinking about this question, there are certainly limits to the lessons that we for oversight that we can learn from from the January 6th committee. Um, one of them, um, and again, this is probably the one at the top of my own list because of how I think about the institution, is the sheer amount of resources that were available to the January 6th committee. So the analysis that we have in the paper of spending by the January 6th committee versus other committees is not perfect because of the kind of time lag that is involved with reporting expenditures by uh, by congressional committee. But using the data on disbursements made by House committees 
that was reported in 2022. January 6th committee reported roughly $11.8 million um, in spending. Um, and this compares to an average of about $8.3 million reported on for the same time period by other House committees. So they had more money. There's a, an interview that you actually did, Quinta, with one of the former January 6th committee staffers that I quote in the um, in the paper who talks about uh, how, quote, money was no object. Um, he has a, a really a quote I really liked quite a bit where he says, and I'm, again, I'm quoting here, it seems like there was a new communications consultant every single day. You know, one day there was one guy at a conference table with a laptop and he just multiplied into like 12 people by the time that I left. It's a very vivid description. Yes, yes. And I'll just reiterate that that is not normal for congressional committees. There's a whole broader conversation that we can have about whether committees um, have adequate resources, whether and where they need more resources. Um, but it is not usual for someone over the course of the time. And I think if I remember correctly, the person um, in question here worked for the, the committee for, I'm going to say, about a year. It may have ultimately been a little bit less than that. But in that time frame, you don't generally see somewhat like the committee staff multiply by by that uh, that much capacity. And so that, I think, is one of the biggest limitations. And then kind of by extension of that, it's not just that money is a limited resource. Time is a limited resource. We talked about that before. We've talked about that a lot in the context of January 6th. And obviously, the January 6th committee itself was limited by how much they could uncover in the time that they had. But they were doing really just the one thing. I mean, the one thing was really big um, and had teams and had the report had chapters and it's 800 pages long, but they were not also really trying to work on legislation. They, in fact, could not, by their organizing resolution, report out their own legislative recommendations. To my mind, the most consequential legislative work that is related pretty directly to January 6th that has come after January 6th is actually the Senate's effort, successful effort to um, update the Electoral Count Act. So most other congressional committees just simply don't have the luxury, I would say, of focusing on just on just one thing, on devoting all of their attention. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say, and again, um, Quinta, you and I have um, written about this um, elsewhere, is this idea that even in other largely bipartisan work by congressional committees, we can't reasonably expect a committee to always be rowing in the same direction in the way that uh, the January 6th committee was. Some of the most unusual things from my institutionalist perspective that we saw the January 6th committee do were things like let every member of the committee basically chair a hearing. Um, and in the case of the January 6th committee, that included just let one of your colleagues talk uninterrupted on national television for a long time. That is something that I'm just going to be honest, members of Congress are not dispositionally well suited to do. Like they all got there because they are, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, politically ambitious people and ceding the spotlight even to other members of your own party in an uninterrupted way like that. It's just not something that we should expect members to do on a, on a frequent basis. I, this may seem sort of cynical, but I think it's, it's true. And I don't want to diminish the fact that there is really good work being done in the House to experiment with different ways of conducting congressional hearings. Um, full disclosure, I was a witness at one of the first hearings where the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress experimented with a different hearing format um, in the summer of 2021. And it was a wonderful experience as a witness to have members, for example, not be limited to just five minutes to ask questions. They sat all on kind of one level as opposed to on the kind of hierarchical dais that you usually see a committee sit on. Um, they alternated Democrats and Republicans around the table. So it wasn't just Democrats on one side of the aisle. But and they will, the folks involved in that effort will admit that that set up while there are committees who um, are experimenting with it and can use it to, um, to a lot of productive ends won't work for everything. And so I think that that is, again, another kind of lesson we want to take away from the January 6th committee, that there were things about its singular purpose that 
aren't applicable to the vast majority of, um, of the work that Congress does. One of the other things you note about the January 6th committee is another thing that we've written about together, and um, we're just playing the hits here, is the legacy of the Mazars case. Um, so for listeners who don't remember, don't have this seared into their brains the way that you and I do, Molly, uh, this is the case that had to do with efforts by multiple congressional committees investigating Trump to get hold of uh, his tax information from the accounting firm Mazars. And the Supreme Court's ruling is complicated, but the long and the short of it for our purposes is essentially that committees need to be more upfront about showing a legislative purpose for the information that they're trying to obtain. And you write in your paper that you know this is something that the January 6th committee seemed to take to heart. There were a lot of speeches on the floor and the congressional record that, you know, really underlining here is why we're doing, you know, we we need this information so that we can, you know, inform Congress's ability to legislate on X, Y, and Z. One of the things that I was curious about is whether you saw the sort of ripple effects of Mazars in activities by other committees. Was it sort of mainly the January 6th committee that seemed to really take this to heart? Or is this something that we might expect to leave a sort of lasting mark in terms of how Congress thinks about conducting oversight and setting out its reasons across other topics? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And certainly in the context of this report, um, we think about the legacy of Mazars most directly um, in connection with the January 6th committee. But I think more generally, thinking about the legacy of Mazars for the 117th Congress and going forward, we want to think about it broadly in relation to just generally how much more litigation is being involved or being deployed in connection um, with congressional oversight, and that we know, we've learned that that can really slow things down. Um, so, you know, we talk a little bit in this in this piece about the litigation in which the January 6th committee itself um, uh, engaged. And, you know, we've talked about that elsewhere on the podcast, um, elsewhere um, on Lawfare. What some of the other, uh, one thing that I had sort of in some ways forgotten about um, until it came to, which is sort of crazy because this was a huge story for multiple years, but until it came time to, to sit down and write this report was um, the fight over the House Ways and Means Committee's ability to get President Trump's tax returns. So that legal battle um, started in uh, April of 2019, which is when Richie Neal, who's the, the, was the Democratic chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, requested the information from the IRS. It didn't conclude until more than three years later when, while we were all watching the end days of the January 6th committee, the House Ways and Means Committee was also in late December 2022 voting to release the information that it had obtained from the um, from the IRS about President Trump's tax returns. So that's, again, just another example of the way in which some of the using the courts to backstop um, oversight efforts of the executive branch have taken on a bigger and bigger role in the oversight process. And I think going forward, um, we should expect to see more of that. I expect that we will see more of the kinds of things that the January 6th committee did vis-a-vis Mazars, which is even while Mazars might not directly in its narrow, in a kind of a narrow reading of it, um, apply to things like the work of the January 6th committee. Um, the I think a, a phrase that you and I used at one point to describe this is sort of Mazars as spaghetti against the wall. So this notion that, you know, if you are going to court to try to block the ability of Congress to get some kind of information. Like, why not deploy Mazars as part of your legal strategy? And then if you're a congressional committee, you're going kind of one step back up the chain. Why not think about shoring yourself up against those kinds of court challenges by engaging in the sort of justifying your legislative purpose um, in the way that Mazars kind of pushes forward the jurisprudence on um, a little bit. So I think, again, in the the broad context of congressional oversight, I think we should think about Mazars as one piece of a puzzle that has made or kind of shaped the increasing use of litigation by committees, or I should say involving committees, uh, 
is often the litigation is actually brought by the individual who is um, trying to avoid having to cooperate with a um, with a congressional committee, sort of a, one piece of that puzzle. So we have been talking about the 117th Congress, which is obviously not the current Congress. At risk of asking you to talk off the cuff about a paper that you haven't yet written, I'm curious how you see any of the trends that you identified here changing, staying the same, uh, sort of repeating themselves from the 116th Congress, where we had divided government in the opposite direction, now that we have a Congress where there is Republican control of the House of Representatives and Democratic control of the White House. Yeah, I think I have maybe three observations. One, to go back to um, to something I said before, is that I do actually think there are a couple of kind of interesting cases, um, again, particularly involving... House committees and the sort of different corners of the Biden administration where things might be returning to more of a kind of accommodationist uh, perspective. And um, you've seen some parts of the Biden executive branch kind of cooperate a little bit more than you might have thought their Trump analogs would have in 2019 and 2020. Um, It's, you know, hard to pin that down exactly. But I think that's one thing I would say. I mean, I would also say more generally, the probably the the bigger, more important trend is just to have gone back to something that looks a little bit more like um, what we were seeing in the 116th Congress under divided party control, where, you know, there are a number of very high profile investigations that the House Republicans um, and their committees are, um, are engaging in. We are maybe circling into something we might call an impeachment inquiry, um, which again feels very familiar from uh, uh, from this time four years ago. I, I can tell as you're saying that just the deep, deep exhaustion in your voice. Uh, yes, is the, is the short answer there. But then the last thing I'll say, which is not so exhausting, but just again, kind of interesting as an institutional development. Um, And this is a a potential legacy of the January 6th committee that we actually don't talk about in the report, but I think we're starting to sort of see a little bit, um, is this idea that we might be progressing into a world where the idea of a select committee to do investigative work on one thing is itself becoming a like marker of um, a party's priorities. So one of the things we do talk about in the paper is the way in which, and this is not work that's new to this paper, um, it comes largely out of some work done by a political scientist at the University of Tampa named um, John Llewellyn, who has documented the ways in which congressional committees over time have started to do more oversight because the legislative process has become increasingly centralized in the hands of party leaders. So if you're a committee chair and you don't think that you are going to have a lot of say in kind of your party's legislative agenda, your one response to that that makes a lot of sense is to devote your fixed time and resources to doing oversight. And so if we think about kind of oversight as a prerogative of committees that fits in with like larger party agendas. It's really interesting to think about this idea that this like institutional creation, uh, the January 6th committee, might have a legacy that includes future majorities feeling pressure to sort of stand up select committees on whatever their biggest investigative priority is. And, you know, there's the, I think, one of the most charitable ways to interpret the House Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government is in this light, um, which is to say that, like, this is a thing that is important to congressional Republicans, particularly in the House. Um, And so there was, I think, a lot of pressure to create that committee as from sort of the logic of, you know, well, January 6th got that kind of committee. So this thing that we care about, like the Democrats care about January 6th, should get its own committee. And I think there are lots of ways in which um, that committee has operated in some bad faith. But I think from an institutional perspective, it's just really interesting to think about how different party majorities use institutional forms to try and achieve their objectives. And it's possible and, you know, we don't know, we'll see where this all goes, that the existence of the January 6th Select Committee 
as, again, as that kind of institutional form has some consequences for the future and, again, what kind of investigations and what form those investigations will take. Are there any other things that you've learned over the course of your work on the 117th and 116th Congress that we should touch on before we close out? I guess the last thing I would say, and this actually goes back to kind of where we started this conversation, is that a lot of what we see, a lot of what we uncovered in the data, a lot of what we write about in this report, a lot of what we write about in the previous reports from this project are these really high profile things that we would uh, we would all kind of think about or mention if you know we were asked you know what it, what is congressional what kinds of things is Congress trying to oversee um, right now kind of involved in their oversight efforts, but at the same time there's lots of other stuff that's going on. Uh, and this is part of why I'm really excited to have other people dig into this data as well. There's just lots of other work that Congress is doing that doesn't get the headlines, but is really important. Often that is that work is bipartisan and involves members of both parties coming together to uh, identify kind of shared things that they both think um, someone in the executive branch is doing wrong. And so I think it's important to remember that um, even as we have this really high profile stuff that can be partisan, or in the case of the January 6th committee, can be bipartisan in ways that we don't always think about mean that it's bipartisan. Uh, But there's just, Congress is doing a lot. And, you know, I'll just close by saying, like, Congress gets a bad rap um, for lots of well-deserved reasons. But one of the best things about doing this work and really more broadly doing some of the work that I do on Congress as an institution is getting to learn about the the good stuff that's happening um, and the the ways in which um, Congress still does find ways to work, even in an era of kind of gridlock and polarization. Let's end on that cautiously positive note. Molly, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thanks for having me, Quinta. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.